Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily Digest. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and our weekly podcast, Thinking LSAT. Here's what we talked about this week. We have an email here from Stefan. Hi, Ben and Nathan. My name is Stefan, and I have just recently purchased the live subscription for The Demon. I have been using you guys to study for roughly two months now and decided to take your advice and try live for a month. Given that, I was wondering how I should implement classes into my study routine. Currently, I aim to do at least 30 minutes, preferably an hour per section per day. That's You, you want to do potentially... Preferably three hours per day, usually through drilling and sometimes sections. Honestly, it sounds like it could be too much. Should I take one class a day, more than one? And should I maintain my current study time for the sections or alter them now that I have added classes to my study regimen? For context about my work ethic, I am shooting to, for a score in the 172 plus range, so I can and will put in the time needed based off your advice. Just don't burn yourself out, Stefan. Like if you ever get in the situation where you feel like you need a day off, then you need a day off. If you ever feel like you uh, don't want to go to class or you don't want to do your LSAT studying, then I think you've probably been doing too much. Like it, the test is fun and easy. You need to let it be fun and easy. So if you ever find yourself racing the clock or just like, oh, I'm frustrated about my practice test, so I'm going to do another practice test immediately. Those are signs of overstudying and burnout. Um, But different people have different amounts of time on their hands and different, you know, capacity for hard work. So, you know, I, I would focus on quality. So one high quality hour every day that's the minimum price of admission if you have time to do a second high quality hour time and energy and focus to do a second high quality hour then great and maybe you have a third high quality hour but most people don't have much more than that so then you need to budget your time accordingly because you need to focus on sleep diet nutrition you know, work, friends, family, your life, in addition to the LSAT. So you've got to find some balance. And I can't tell you what that balance is. You have to figure that balance out for yourself. As far as how many classes to go to, especially at the very beginning, you know, if you just did one month of the live program, which I'm super glad you did, I think you need to like mix it up and 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 check out lots of different classes. Uh, By the way, you don't have to show up at the very beginning. You don't have to stay till the end. If you want to just dip in in the middle of class for 10 minutes and see how it's going, that's totally fine. I I never, Ben, do you mind that at all? If somebody comes or goes during your class? Sometimes we don't even notice. Depends. Yeah. Depending on how many people are there, we, we may or may not notice. But I would just check out our calendar, find stuff that looks like it's the right topic at the right time for you. And then check out all of our different teachers because everybody's coming at it from a slightly different way. And you'll find the teachers that really resonate with you. We have amazing. I mean, we just have an unbelievable staff of teachers and they keep getting better. 
So check out lots of classes and see which ones fit. Yeah, I agree, Stefan or Stefan, with everything that Nathan just said, don't burn out and so on. But I want to add one more thing here. I think you're too regimented. <laughs> you have this plan to do one section of one type of each section every day. I think it's nice to have a plan because then you can just do that every day. But I... I think you're also limiting yourself. You're like locking yourself into that metric. And so then you're assessing your success based on whether or not you did those three things or not. And that's not the measure of success. The measure of success is, as Nathan said, one quality hour. And really what that means is doing a question and then understanding it until it clicks. And that may mean that you have to read the explanation, you have to redo the question, you have to start writing an ask button question. That may be enough to answer your confusion and to resolve your confusion, but you may need to submit it and then go to the next question. And if that takes you 20 minutes, I don't care. That's great. That's where the real work takes place. And I'm worried that this three sections a day or two sections in one class or one section and 30 minutes of drilling and one class every other day, I feel like it's going to force you into focusing on the wrong things. Yeah. The right thing is one question, learn it. Next yeah. question, learn it. That's it. Yeah. The click where you didn't get it, but now you get it and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe, look at this mistake I was making. I misinterpreted. I just, I was misunderstanding it. Now I totally understand it. I see why the right answer is perfectly right. I see why the wrong answers are perfectly wrong. I would never make that mistake again. That's what that click feels like. And yeah, that click is worth more than an hour study session where you don't get the click. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or, or a yeah. class where you sit back passively and you just don't really get anything out of it. You're not actually engaging and or like maybe it's below your level, so you're not getting anything out of it. Maybe it's above your level, so you're not getting anything out of it. Or you're just sitting back with your camera off and you're not participating, so you're not getting anything out of it. There's lots of ways that you can go to class as an excuse for like not even really grappling with. Yeah. And we've seen some of those some of those students, some people who just go to class after class after class. And it's like, wow, you got high levels of engagement or attendance, but how much clicking do you have going on? How much engagement is actually not the right word. You have a high level of attendance, but are you really engaging with the test? That's what yeah, you're want. there. We appreciate you being there, but sometimes it's like, wait, you're in class again. I just saw you. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like why are, Because you do need to be doing your self-studying. Like don't yeah. come to class as a substitute for self-study. You have to yep. be self-studying. Yeah. Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Nathan Fox. With me today is Jackson Lanning. Jackson is a former student of the LSAT Demon. Uh, maybe we can start with the bottom line and then you can tell your whole story. Um, what did? Where did you start and what did you end up with? Yeah, so I did, from my diagnostics test, um, I was at about at a 155. I don't remember exactly what I had um, from there what I was coming into the actual program was I had about a three, three, uh, for undergrad, um, graduated and worked for a few years, but I knew that as I was applying to law schools, I really wanted to, as you know, it's kind of that magic number in the 170. Um, so I took the LSAT the first time, I believe April of 2021, I got a 163 and then 
I was going to take it again in June. I contacted a tutor who actually said that he had a 10 week program, but he said, there's a couple guys who do YouTube videos that you might want to take a look at. So I had about three weeks until my next test. At that point, uh, I started looking at the YouTube videos for the LSAT demon and they were really helping. And so I signed up for the demon itself. And sure enough, on the next take, I got a 167 um, before ultimately taking it for a final time where I got a 172 um, attribute much of the success to both the lessons, the explanations, um, the demon tool itself, I thought was fantastic. Uh, but that's kind of the progression I made and the ultimate success that I had. Then ultimately I'll be attending uh, UVA school of law in next fall in August. Nice. Okay. 155 ultimately ended up with a 172. So that's a 17 point improvement and going to UVA this fall. Amazing. What, uh, how long did you do the demon and what level did you do the demon at? Uh, so I did the, um, I was looking at this last night. It's, it's been a little while. So I was doing the, uh, not the live version. I was doing the, the premium version. Yep. So with full access to the tools, the classes, but not on the, the live help. So, um, and I found that those things that were helping me was the access to that, um, you know, reviewing some of the lessons that you had. Uh, the other thing I'll, I'll shout out as well is the blog I thought was immensely helpful. Um, as you work through the whole process, I, I don't even know if that's a part of the actual subscription plan, but the blog itself, I also thought was great. Cool. Um, okay. So you were at the premium level of subscription, 195 a month. When Give some tips, like what did you do to study? What did you do to use those demon resources? Were you doing full tests, timed sections, mostly drilling? When you missed a question, what did you do to make sure you understood your mistake? Yeah. So I was kind of doing it, um, you know, I, I, as instructed in some of the the ways where, you, you know, you go through a time section, um, you go back to, I, I thought after I took it for the first time, you had areas that I knew that I was a little bit weaker at. So I wanted to review particular lessons. And with that too, you know, a, after reviewing these lessons and seeing the different approaches, your side of saying, I think with logical reasoning, uh, especially it was, it was kind of the attacking the argument and almost what you guys always describe in these explanations are like, yes, these arguments are stupid. You just need to find out exactly why they are. But so with that, it started really with reviewing the lessons that I felt I needed more practice on. And almost immediately I felt that I had these different ways to approach these problems that I hadn't seen before. And I was like, Oh, you know, that actually totally makes sense. And so after working through the demon and kind of seeing if I did miss a question, having a very detailed explanation on every single question I missed and seeing, you know, the flaws in the way that I was thinking where I was missing these particular points, that was helpful. And then once I got, you know, built up in the lessons of the demon, then finally was able to take the time sections as well. That's kind of how I progressed. And then, you know, of course, practice tests and all of that. But I thought too, the, the ability to customize really what you were looking at because I had used other study programs and seeing what those relied on, I was able to kind of shift around what tests I'd already seen, what, you know, potential practice questions I had seen. And so the flexibility of it all also made it completely easy to use. Uh, and, and ultimately again, too, just the, the progress was, was pretty quick, but as well too, you know, I was ultimately able to build up to that point where I did feel comfortable with everything. Okay. Um, so, so it sounds like the lessons for you, uh, which, yeah, those are available at the middle level of subscription, the premium level of subscription, you get access to those lessons. I think that those are most helpful for people who have already been doing some just LSAT practice. Like you've been doing some tests, you've been doing some timed sections, you've been encountering, you know, some problem areas. 
really frequently, you know, that that barrier, the 170 barrier, mm-hmm. really frequently it will be we, we don't like talk about theory very much. Right. We're 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 more like, hey, this makes sense. You got to read it carefully and make sense of it. But there are some areas of technicality that actually matter. And I think the lessons can be really helpful for for getting you to dig into those. Like, for example, on the LSAT, there are two types of assumption questions. There's a sufficient assumption question and there's a necessary assumption question. And it's like I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody who was banging their head against the wall at 167. And they and I would ask them, like, well, is that a sufficient assumption question or a necessary assumption question? And they're like, um, sufficient assumption question. And I'm like, well, you're right. But um, I would like you to be a little more confident in that. And also, by the way, OK, so now that you know it's a sufficient assumption question, what are you going to do about that? Yeah. What do you do on a sufficient assumption question? And they're like, um, find the, you know, and it's like, okay, listen, you need a rubric. Like you need a just elevator pitch, like two seconds. What are you going to do? Oh, it's a sufficient assumption question. I have to prove the conclusion of the argument. Correct. Boom. And when you learn that that difference, or I guess another difference is um the difference between flaw questions and weakened questions frequently people don't get it that like one of them is describe the argument you have to be able to prove that they did this thing that you're accusing them of that's a flaw question whereas a weakened question is a lot more freewheeling right it's like well just which one of these five if it's true is going to put them in a bad spot and that's so those finer points those those like technical things see this is not the thing that I think you should start at when you're at 145. When you're at 145, you need to read carefully, right? You need to understand what it says on the page. But when you're at 165 and you're wondering, man, what is, how do I, it's, it feels like arcane and weird. Well, that's the point where, yeah, okay, maybe you want to dig into some of these lessons and uh, figure out those areas of weakness. That's kind of exactly where I was and the nuance between the different parts. It was that I felt that your side had made it so easy to where, you know, I saw the issue I was making on some of these deeming questions too. And it was like, Oh my God, I'm treating that like a sufficient assumption question. It's necessary assumption or anything like that. Why would I do that? And then you guys kind of saying, no, see, this would be the right answer for this other type of question, but not right. anything like that. And, but, but yeah, the, the, it was kind of like, once you got to that point to make that next jump, you needed that understanding. And yeah. the other thing too, was, you know, I would always say, you think to myself, I think early in the process where it's like, okay, well, you know, I can get these wrong if there's, or I could get these all right. If there's no time limit, but being able to, I, there is a time limit. It's a huge part of the test and being yeah. able to identify it quickly you know, draw back on some of that, uh, the way you treat the questions quickly and all that. It's just, again, it's, it's just becoming comfortable with it because as your side says, again, too, you can learn this test. It's a very learnable test and just that comfort level of it is just so important. So I, I attribute again, huge part. I know I, I'm kind of patting you guys on the back a bunch here, but I, again, I'm so happy with the kind of end result that I appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate it. I mean, you guys, did, you you did the work, Jackson. It, it wasn't us. I mean, we're just explaining to you how easy this test can actually be if you put in the time and effort and, you know, have the right kind of help. You can realize, oh, this is, yeah, okay, that's what it says. This is what it means. And 
here's what they're going for on that type of thing. And you're right that the speed, you know, the, the speed, it, it doesn't come from trying to go fast. It doesn't come from managing your time or from any gimmicky kinds of strategies, you know, oh, you must do the first 10 questions in 10 minutes or whatever dumb. It's not about that. It, it, it's about knowing what the answer is going to be because you know what they're asking you. And then you can read like two words of a wrong answer choice and just know that it's wrong immediately. Like, oh, no, I see where you're going with that. And that ain't going to be it. So see. ya, Right. And then it's just like becomes a fun, easy game. Yeah. Well, I, I think, again, too, that that was one of the pieces for me is, you know, talking to people when I was studying for the LSAT. It was like, you know, once I got, you know, with with everything that you guys offered, I was like, I actually didn't mind studying. It was like, you know. I was someone who was working full time too. And so when I was studying, you know, it was engaging. I felt that the questions and the responses that I was seeing and receiving totally made sense. And then, you know, it, it's helpful if you're looking at a response to your question, you see someone saying like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> laughing in my room, like, you know, that's a refreshing kind of break from the monotony that can be the study. And I actually, I actually didn't mind studying at all. Um, once I kind of got in the, the groove of it and I thought, it was engaging, which is the biggest part. It, it's, you know, a lot of man hours are put in kind of on the side of actually studying for this thing. And so being able to kind of, you know, not look at it as something that you have to do or something that's really bugging you that you're going to have to do today. It's something that is yeah. engaging and you are interactive with. You mentioned uh, responses to your questions. Are you talking about the ask button or are you just talking about the written responses? I was talking about the written. Yeah. A lot of the written responses that are already there. And and again, too, it's like for every question, a lot of, you know, services that you might have may have half the questions that have explanations for or something like that, or not all or you're, you know, stuck Googling things um, to see if you can find any sort of explanation for it. And almost every question that I came across had a great explanation for. So that's always super helpful. Yeah, that's great. How, let me ask you this. How many, um, you know, there are 100 practice tests, which means there are 400 practice sections. You went from 155 to 172. How many practice tests would you say you did? Uh, so I, I'd probably say I did around 85% over the course. At least I saw not all those questions, I'd say. I'd say I saw questions from about, you know, 85 of 100 tests or something like that. So the actual percentage that I, I covered of what you guys had, I mean, I would say, you know, 40%, 45% yeah. of the actual available material of seeing, you know, I granted because you jump around a little bit and you touch a number of different mm-hmm. tests for different things. Um, saw a lot of those practice tests, but no, the material, I mean, it wasn't like I was running out of questions at the end or anything like that on my third take. It was like, I still had plenty of material, even if I was going to take it again, which I, I, I wouldn't mean, have, but yeah. Even if people do do all 10,000 of those questions, it's like painting the golden gate bridge. You you can get done with it and then just go ahead and start over. Cause there's you're there's still stuff you can learn from those old questions. If you, if you do run out, nobody needs to worry about running out, but yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say is like, yeah, okay. So about 40%. I mean, did you think about reaching for higher? Did you think about trying to take it again to beat your 172? So I did after, well, I'd already taken it. That was my third time. So the big thing too was my timing wasn't the best laid out. And it was something that, you know, I kind of, I guess, signing up for your program a little late, didn't realize the importance of applying in September until I kind of, you know, saw the emphasis that your team put on it. 
And looking back, I was like, yeah, I would have adjusted the timing to and allow myself to do that, you know, give yourself that much more of an edge and all that. But uh, after I was taking the third time, I, I, you know, a part of me for pride wanted to, you know, reach even higher because I felt that I was on this, you know, great track of momentum and all that stuff. But um, kind of where it was, it was, you know, my applications ready to go at the beginning of October. I felt that I needed to get it out versus trying to reach even higher than that for that. for that next level of tiering of scoring dying to get into the rat race huh (laughs) well i I wanted to get the applications out and um Uh so that was kind of the big thing but i mean it was one of those things that after i saw that you know oh i had the 172 it's like i feel that i could even you know stretch that even go more but uh, i didn't ultimately end up doing that well i hope you don't regret your decision uh come september when you're fighting it out in uh, your 1l year <laughs> it's gonna be a grind man everything i ever hear from 1ls is just like wow i knew it was gonna be hard but i had no idea it was gonna be that hard yeah i've i've heard the horror stories unfortunately but uh you know kind of know what i'm signing up for at this point good good well um congratulations jackson you uh you killed it that's amazing um good luck at uva this fall i hope you'll keep in touch with us um we we love hearing from our alums if there's ever anything we can do for you networking or or whatever absolutely and, and I, yeah thank you guys as well again so much gratitude for kind of allowing me to reach this level that i wanted to reach and i'll make sure to touch base and let you know just how awful it is uh come come september time. <laughs> awesome thanks for coming on uh jackson lanning is an incoming 1l at uva law we have an email here from ty hey guys i took the lsat in november of 2021 i got a 170 and have an ugpa of 3.97 okay nice work excited with my score And in a rush to start law school, I settled with that performance. Settled on that performance. I settled on that performance. I applied in mid-December and only to schools in the top 20. My application materials were decent, but I knew they could have been better. Fast forward to about May of this year. After getting waitlisted at multiple schools, Columbia, UCLA, USC, Penn, and rejected from a few, including Harvard, Yale, NYU, and Duke, I knew I would be reapplying in 2022. I fired up the demon and resumed my studying. I took the June LSAT and got a 176. I am very happy with the score, but I am still a bit worried about the upcoming cycle. I have two main concerns. One, school is comparing my materials from last year to my much improved materials this year. Don't think that's going to happen much. My two, my BA is in Talmudic law. Talmudic? Yeah, Talmudic. Talmudic law, rabbinical rabbinical studies, and from a no-name college. Do you think law schools care about that? I think they care what number they're going to have to report on their 509. I do think that they sometimes care when you're on the bubble and, you know, Ty did it wrong the first time around. Mm -hmm. Ty could have done better than 170. Ty applied in mid-December. And that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to apply with the very best LSAT you can at the beginning of the cycle when the schools are desperately trying to fill full classes for the upcoming year. Yep. So it's no surprise that you didn't get the offers you wanted, especially because you only applied to top 20 schools. 
176 is an entirely different guy. That's not the same guy. You're going from below the median to above the median. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we look at one of these schools um, that waitlisted you or rejected you. Mm -hmm. You know, you got an NYU waitlist. NYU's median LSAT is fifty. Uh, is a uh, 172. Their 25th percentile is 170. Their 75th percentile is 174. Ty, when you applied to NYU the first time, you were well below their median. You were at their 25th percentile. They only admit 25% of the class who looks like that. Now you're applying with a 176 that will move their median up, which helps them with law school rankings. It's above their 75th percentile. There are only 25% of people at NYU who have anything close to that LSAT. They're going to look at that and they're going to go, wow, this dude is like overqualified. Yeah, I put in his numbers, a 3.97 GPA and a 170 LSAT into the scholarship estimator at LSATdemon.com forward slash scholarships. And NYU says, hey, uh, the estimator says you're going to get less than half <laughs> tuition scholarships. And then if we update that to a 176, it changes to full. You know, and students, I was just laughing about this in class. Students are always like, but law schools say that if I improve a lot, they're going to raise an eyebrow. Yeah, raise an eyebrow of like, wow, this person's more valuable now. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better look you know, at them. Yeah, basically, we're saying the same thing. They weren't even looking at you before you got that higher score. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I really want to get across to people. Like, it's always better to have taken it another time and scored higher. That's always better. That cannot possibly be bad. Taking it again and scoring higher is only good. Like, yeah, have you ever heard anyone say, gee, I wish I wouldn't have put that higher score on my record? God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the just, problems that that created for me. <laughs> at at Harvard, Yale, you know, these, this was probably like an auto reject with a 170. Yeah. Like, no, we're not lowering our median LSAT for you. Maybe they are concerned about the rabbinical studies they're probably not. I don't think they give a shit about the major. If anything, that major actually sounds interesting to a law school. I have to think because studying Talmudic law and rabbinical studies, like you're used to studying the same type of arcane shit that you're going to be studying when you go to law school. Right. And you got good grades. The no name college might matter a little bit more to those top, top schools because they don't know whether they can trust the 3.9. 3.97. So, you know, listen to what Dean Z says. Dean Z says, I care because of my rankings and I care because I want to know whether you can cut it at my school. And when she sees that 170, she goes, eh, you're below my median LSAT. Now, I'm not so sure about these other things. So you're out. Done. Yeah. You're going to hurt my rankings and that 170. I'm not sure if you can cut it at my school. But then when you reapply and you show Dean Z a 176, she goes, I do care. Uh, she goes, you're going to help my rankings, which is great. And 
Now, I, if anything, I have more likelihood of thinking you can cut it. Now, in class the other night, we were hypothesizing a bit about, hey, what if a school looks at that and goes, oh, I wonder if this person got accommodations mm -hmm. on their retake? Mm -hmm. But even then, it still can't hurt you. It can't possibly hurt you, right? Mm -hmm. Because if if Dean Z's brain is split into two, the like, does this help my rankings? Can you actually cut it at my law school? The first part of her brain is still like, it helps our rankings. Yeah, and <laughs> they're gonna walk themselves into things that help them, right? Like if you're like, well, yeah. uh, maybe this person was accommodated, but you're gonna be like, but I don't know for sure. No, and they're going to discriminate against you on the possibility that you got accommodated. Oh, my God. It's just too much. <laughs> no, they're not. That, 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 that can't be what they're thinking. I mean, if it is, that's insane. And I don't think that they would be, you know, in the position that they're in at these top law schools, if that's the type of weird shit they were doing in their admissions decisions. I think I think they see this higher LSAT and they go helps my rankings, makes it more likely that this person um is going to be able to compete at my school. You're in. Yeah. And the earlier application is not going to hurt you either. Nope. I think that you have, you know, and Ty, you're also, you're just worrying about something that you can't control yeah. at all. I mean, you're not going to know for months. You can't even apply until September. And you're not going to hear from many of these schools until like the spring of next year. So you've got six months, nine months. You need to just chill. Enjoy your life. We have an email here from Kaylin. Good afternoon. I have a bit I have a bit of a unique situation. Question. A bit of a unique question. Thanks. Stop using the word unique, Kaylin. <laughs> it's not unique. And and if it is unique, then it's literally unique. It's not a bit of unique. It's not, yeah, there's not like a gradient, right? Right. Unique means one of a kind. I know the stock advice y'all give is take the highest rank scholarship you can get. However, you also say know what you want to do. I want to ultimately run for office and big law schools, Harvard, Georgetown, UVA, etc., are heavily biased in the House and Senate. I'm applying with a 3.63, a 173 as a URM, retaking the LSAT. Retaking the LSAT have PT'd higher, and that was my first test. So 173 on record, thinks he can do better. Okay. Okay. In August and September, um, to still be at the front of this cycle. But to my original question, would it be worth considering a higher rank school with more debt burden? At what point for my hyper-specific careers, uh, I'm sorry, at what point for hyper-specific careers like working on the Hill and politics are where prestige does matter a lot past just your first few years, should rank versus cost be reconsidered? Love the podcast and the demon. Ultimately, uh, that's not a question we can answer. You got to figure that out for yourself. You got to figure out what kind of, how badly you need that high-ranking school and what your expected return is for going there. Like how much debt are you going to take on? And how do you, how much money do you expect to make when you graduate from those schools? Yeah, not unique at all, by the way. That's a question that we get all the time. You know, you need to 
ask the people who have these kinds of jobs. I mean, I just don't see any reason why. Why does an elected official even need a JD? I don't know. There are tons of elected officials who don't have JDs, including our former president, um, <laughs> who was a you know host on a TV show. <laughs> yeah, and an NBA, so <laughs> it's it you. I I don't I don't know. I mean to to yeah to work in government. I I have no idea. But I mean to me the JD is special special training for people who want to practice law. And I don't think that elective elected representatives are practicing law. You're I mean what do they do? They basically run for office. That's what they do. No, to be yeah, to be an elected official, you have to be good at running for office and do you hear people on the stump saying, by the way, I got my JD from this school? Maybe they do, but I just don't see that as a big selling point. It's more about pulling people together and getting them to support you in whatever way you can. Or it like helps their their fundraising. Because I mean, that's what they really do, right? We're saying that like campaigning is what they do, which basically means that fundraising is what they do. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that you're going to have better, you know, fundraising opportunities from uh, top 14 schools than you would from other schools. Uh, so maybe it matters, but, um, boy, a lifetime of debt for some speculative future career running for public office. I mean, I guess once you're in office, huge return, you'll be able to defraud the government enough to repay your loans in a variety of different ways. But, uh, yeah. Wish I had a better answer. Good luck. Oh, well, actually, we're just going to come back to our default presumption, which is don't pay because then you don't have to worry about any of this. And I I'd still, I don't see the value of getting a higher degree, a higher Yeah, school. it's like, you know, so three, what are we actually talking about here with a 3.63 and a 173 and a URM, I wonder. I'm going to go to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. And I'm going to put in, uh, what were those numbers exactly again? Thank you, Kalen, for providing exact numbers. 3.63173. URM. And maybe you can score higher, which maybe would bump some of this up a little bit. But, you know, you can get a full tuition scholarship, it looks like, at UCLA, Wash U in St. Louis, Boston University, University of Florida, like decent schools. And and you can get more than half, it looks like, at other schools in the top 14. Yeah. But but like how so he, you know, he mentions UVA specifically. Do you think his chances for elected office are really that much better at UVA versus UCLA? I, I don't know, but you know, you're you're gonna have six figures more of debt just going to hamstring you no matter what you decide to do with your career. And so I think I would always be, I'll always be looking to uh, get the, get the money. Yeah. You just have more freedom. (laughs) Yeah. I, I will say I got a message the other day from a recent, um, a recent Harvard admit, and I would like to read that to you. Sure. Um, I asked, you know, like, Hey, how's it going? You nervous about starting at Harvard? 
this fall. And they said, you know what made it all a lot less stressful? Harvard gave me a ton of need-based aid. I got a $53,000 grant and a $10,000 subsidized loan from the school. I think 53,110 is pretty close to the maximum that you can get. Um, not sure what kind of a package they're going to give me for year two as they recalculate need every year, but I'm blown away. And so, you know, it is true that at the very top, top, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, um, you can get a lot of need-based money at those schools. Yeah. This is somebody who's been supporting himself for a while. So, you know, I guess they weren't looking at parents funds. Yeah. Um, so that's something to consider if you actually get into those top, top, top schools. Yeah. But otherwise take the scholarship. This email is from Jacob. And then we have air quotes, Reese. I hope this finds you both. Well, if it isn't too much trouble, I'd like your opinion on a couple of thoughts. I'm in a good position when it comes to softs and money going towards law school. I'm a URM and military National Guard. I also have 60% of the post 9-11 GI Bill due to a deployment I'm currently going through. That combined with the Veterans Choice Act will give me in-state tuition and a 60% scholarship before any other merit-based aid would appear at all public institutions. <laughs> That's a good start. My fatal flaw is that 18-year-old me didn't like going to class, so a flunked semester tanked my already not great GPA to bad levels. I have a 3.0 LSAC UGPA, or I will have a 3.0 LSAC once I graduate. I don't know how he knows that. My dog, I guess, assuming straight A's for, for the rest of the way. My diagnostic LSAT 147 with the demon was as follows. Minus 12, minus 12, and then minus 13 with logic games being the worst of the bunch. I know to get the 40% scholarship to not pay for law school, I'll need to kill the LSAT to offset my UGPA. I have signed up for the January LSAT because I will not return to the States until Thanksgiving or Christmas. I used another curriculum, some other LSAT prep for a month before I found you guys. And I like that drilling AI much better than the problem sets and other stuff that they encouraged. My goal score range would be between 165 and 173, and I have close to six months to make it happen. My questions about the demon and drilling are as follows. Should I wait until I'm getting the majority of three star and below correct? That's a demon AI score of 50 before I start taking time sections and PTs. Ben? Nope. You can start taking time sections uh, on day one. Yep. I think you should be mixing in time sections all the time just so that you don't freak out about time sections. Yep. Go back and forth between drilling and time sections. Yep. Should I focus on, sorry, should I focus my entire being on perfecting LG before anything else? No. You're preparing for a, a triathlon that has swimming and running and biking. You're not going to get really good at biking for the first two months and then start thinking about jogging and swimming. You're going to do a little bit of everything. You might want to focus on games. That's fine. But your actual scores aren't too different. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got room for improvement in all three sections. So you can lean a little more heavily on games if you like. 
but you don't you definitely don't want to be focusing on games for the entirety of your LSAT prep. You also don't want to focus your entire being on the law school admission <laughs> test. <laughs> you you want to give it one hour, maybe two hours a day, and that's it. This is not the be all end all of your life. No. Nope. Yeah, it's worth a lot of money. And yeah, you should work hard at it, but we're not going to focus our entire being on anything. Should I treat every drilling question like a blind review question? I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but if you mean do the question and do the best you possibly can before you hit submit, I would say yes. Yeah, you're not racing the clock when you're drilling. You're picking the right answer. If you just get all the right answers, you're going to be killing it. Trying to go fast, you're never ever trying to go fast. Yep. Should I leverage the post GI bill as much as possible? That is not go to a similarly ranked private school compared to not pay a dime towards law school. If it's a similarly ranked private school, then I would go to the one that's cheaper. The only time that you would consider this is if you could get into a substantially higher ranked school, private or otherwise. Yeah, private versus public makes no difference. I he he's saying that his um whatever money from the government, Veterans Choice Act, it, it only seems covers like it applies public. at public schools. Yeah. So yeah, I mean you're gonna probably be leaning toward public schools in your applications. But once you have your offers in hand, that's when you're gonna decide based on total cost of attendance. I mean, all these questions can be answered with one response, which is apply broadly. Right. All these questions about where should I go, where, whatever. It's like, I I don't know, dude, like get your offers. Get your offers because that's going to make a lot of decisions for you, right? Some schools are going to come back and not accept you. Some schools are going to offer you, you know, a 10, 15% scholarship. Others are going to offer you a full ride. Once you see those offers, some things that you're thinking about and losing sleep over are going to be completely decided and over. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Any advice for military applicants? Should I use a commander or a JAG in my unit for a letter of recommendation? Use whoever knows you the most, knows you best. Yeah. And ask both of them and see how they respond. Yep. You can get both of those letters on record and then you can decide which one or both you're going to submit to various schools. Most schools want two letters. Some schools want three. You, there's no problem with having extra letters sitting there in your LSAC account. And you might be able to tell from that commander or from that JAG how enthusiastic they are about writing you that letter. Uh, so why not just ask them both? Email daily at LSATdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.